Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back for episode two of Genostory. We agreed to do this. I'm your host, historian John Lestrange. So last month we discussed the history of genocide. We went over the invention of the term, the early days of the field, and the difficulties with prevention in an international community that just doesn't see itself as such. When we approach the issue of genocide, it's important to recognize that genocide never begins with killings. It always begins with words. Genocides start years before the killings begin, and they will continue for years after the killings have stopped. With that in mind, there are a number of tools that we can use to aid us in our analysis of these events. While each genocide is its own unique horror, and it wouldn't do to draw too many comparisons between them, there are enough aspects and characteristics that are common across almost every genocide that a decent case can be made for the field of comparative genocide. It's really just the manner in which these characteristics and aspects are expressed that are different. One of the tools that we'll be using or that we'll be discussing this month is the Pyramid of Hate. Uh, it's a personal favorite of mine. I've used it in most of the scholarly work that I've done in the field of genocide studies. I've used it in all of the books that I've written, whether they've been published yet or not. It even made an appearance in my master's thesis that I wrote back in grad school. The Pyramid of Hate was designed by the Anti-Defamation League, but it was based off of the Alport Scale of Prejudice and Discrimination. The Alport Scale was created by American psychologist Gordon Alport, in 1954. It's described as a measure of the manifestation of prejudice in a society. Both pyramids have five levels, with the top level being genocide itself, each level being built upon and supported by the levels that come before it. The conceit of the pyramid is that it starts off with simple, seemingly innocuous actions, and as each previous level is normalized, the next, more complex level can be built upon it. As we travel up the pyramid, behaviors and the institutions that those behaviors support become more and more difficult to dismantle and challenge. Not every action that you can find on the Pyramid of Hate will lead to genocide, but every genocide is built on the acceptance of those attitudes and actions found on the lower levels of the pyramid. What we have to do is challenge those lower levels of the pyramid when we find them in ourselves, our institutions, and others. Now, the ADL regularly updates the pyramid to reflect the changing understandings of human rights and what it means to be a compassionate and inclusive person in today's society. I know this because the 2018 and 2019 versions of the pyramid can both be found on the ADL's website. So the pyramid that exists today is a bit different than the one I worked with back in grad school, but by and large the central themes are the same. While the pyramid
pyramid has been updated as years go by and the specifics of its categories have changed a little bit. The categories themselves have remained entirely the same as the ones that Alport first devised back in 1954. We'll just start at the bottom and we'll work our way up. The first level of the pyramid is called by the ADL Biased Attitudes, and Alport called it Antilocution, which is just a great word. Alport defines antilocution as a form of prejudice in which negative verbal remarks are made about a person or group in a public or private setting and are not addressed to the target itself. The term was coined by Alport in his book The Nature of Prejudice and it never really gained any traction. Hate speech has become a far more common term for the phenomenon of anti-locution. I personally like the word anti-locution because it's made by smushing together locution, right, the word for speech, and anti meaning no or bad even, so we've just got a word for bad speech. Alport points out that people who are engaging in anti-locution may not be aware that they're engaged in a discriminatory act, especially as this anti-locution or these biased attitudes become more normalized, we really stop being aware of them as negative things. They're just commonly held beliefs about groups of people or about individuals. To get into specifics about what this level of biased attitudes or antilocution is comprised of, we can look at what the ADL has on their pyramid graphic. They have the first level of the pyramid including stereotyping, fear of differences, justifying biases by seeking out like-minded people, seeking out information to confirm one's existing beliefs and or biases, a lack of self-reflection or awareness of privilege. All of these things are, you know, they're, they're thoughts, they are words, and they can be brushed off as not a big deal. Alport points out that the targets of antilocution may feel the need to join in or comedize this antilocution if it's done by the majority. You don't want to be seen as rocking the boat or, uh, you know, as being too combative. So this, uh, these stereotypes can be brushed off or turned into jokes. And we'll discuss the use of humor on the Pyramid of Hate and in Prejudice Attitudes a little bit later in the episode. Level 2 of the Pyramid of Hate is called Acts of Bias by the ADL and Avoidance by Al. Avoidance, social exclusion, or marginalization is the act of relegating a certain person or group to the fringes of society. The term social exclusion was first used in France in 1994 in the journal The International Labor Review. The outcome of social exclusion is that affected individuals or communities are prevented from participating fully in the economic, social, and political life of the society in which they live. Right? They are uh, marginalized, pushed to the outskirts of society. The ADL includes the following on the second level of the pyramid. Non-inclusive language, insensitive remarks, microaggressions, biased and belittling jokes, cultural appropriation, social avoidance and or exclusion, name-calling, ridicule, bullying, slurs, and epithets, and dehumanization. These are all considered worse than the first level of the pyramid, but they're often still brushed off as no big deal. 
You'll hear people who are engaging in the first and second levels of the pyramid saying that it's just a joke, right? And that we shouldn't take it too seriously because it's just a joke. People are still often unaware that the things that they're doing are harmful here, though that ignorance is mostly willful at this point, especially in 2020 with how aware so much of society has become about the dangers of non-inclusive language, stereotyping, dehumanization, things of this nature. Anyone still engaged in these types of behaviors is being willfully ignorant. One of the specific aspects of the second level of the pyramid that we have to be aware of is dehumanizations. This is probably the most sinister aspect of level two. Dehumanization is one of the eight forms of moral disengagement described by Albert Bandura in 1975 in the Journal of Research in Personality. The dictionary defines dehumanization as the process of depriving a person or a group of positive human qualities. I just threw a lot of jargon at you, so let's simplify that. Dehumanization is when we refer to people or groups groups as anything other than human. We categorize whole groups or individual people as less than or other than human. David Smith, the author of Less Than Human, explains that we want to harm a group of people, but it goes against our wiring as members of a social species to actually harm, kill, torture, or degrade other humans. Smith explains that there are deep inhibitions that prevent us from treating other people like animals. He writes, dehumanization is a way of subverting those inhibitions. Basically, it's hard to kill other people, to take an entire group of human beings and to say that they should all be killed. So before we can move on to acts of violence against an entire group, we have to turn them into something other than human. We have to make them subhuman in some way, dehumanize them. The Nazis called the Jews a disease. The Hutu called the Tutsi cockroaches using the Kenya Rwanda word in Yenzi. The Ottomans called the Armenians cattle or infidels. Irish Americans used to be called apes. Undocumented immigrants are still called illegals, and African Americans are called thugs and monsters in the media and by police pretty much constantly. These are all pretty classic examples of dehumanization. Anytime you find instances of dehumanization in society, you should do everything in your power to stop it. Because once we've successfully dehumanized a group of people, we view them as outside the scope of justice and morality. They're not real people, and so the proper rules of decorum and conduct don't apply. Any harm that befalls those people seems justified or even warranted. We're gonna talk now a little bit about the concept of just joking. Uh, These first two levels of the pyramid are so often brushed off as we're just joking, don't take it so seriously. But that's not a real thing. There's never just joking. Jason P. Steed, an appellate lawyer in the Texas Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, made a Twitter thread back uh, in 2016 on August 9th on the social function of humor and the concept of just joking. Alright, so actually, Steed wrote his doctoral dissertation on the social function of humor, but I don't have access to his dissertation. I do have access to his Twitter thread, which is great, and I'm going to link to in the show notes because you should go and read the thing in its entirety. It's brilliant. Steed says that humor is a social act that serves a social function. He says that no one is ever just joking. 
Humor isn't something we do by ourselves, it's a way that we relate to and interact with others. We use humor to form social groups. We use humor to bring people into or keep them out of those groups. That's what humor does. This is what it's for, and because of this, humor is tied up in ethics. Who do we embrace with our humor? Who do we shun? Why and how? This is why racist jokes or sexist jokes, ableist jokes, etc. so forth are bad, not just because they alienate certain groups, but because they serve to assimilate the idea of racism into our lives. A racist joke sends a message to the in-group that racism is acceptable. If you don't laugh, you're part of the out-group. The racist joke teller might be just joking, but this is only said as a defense to the out-group. They don't need to defend themselves to the in-group because the in-group finds such racism to be acceptable. If you're willing to accept the excuse of just joking, you're willing to accept the idea that's being joked about. You're willing to take certain people and push them to the fringes of society as something worthy of being mocked or joked about. And once we have normalized those jokes, once we've normalized that dehumanization, we can move on to level three of the Pyramid of Hate, which the ADL calls systemic discrimination and Alport just called discrimination. This is the act of making an unfavorable distinction for a being based on the group, class, or category to which they are perceived to belong. It's sometimes referred to as othering. Right? We create an us-versus-them dynamic. There is us, the in-group, the good, normal people, and then there is the other. The Pyramid of Hate updated in 2019 to include the systemic nature of discrimination. The ADL includes the following on the third level of the pyramid. Criminal justice disparities, inequitable school resource distribution, housing segregation, inequitable employment opportunities, wage disparities, voter restrictions and repression, and unequal media representation. A really fantastic conceptualization of this othering, this us-versus-them dynamic, can be found in the Rudyard Kipling poem, We and They. I'm going to read just a little bit of that poem now, and I'll post a, a link to it in the show notes so that you can read more of it if you want, but I'm just going to go through a little bit of it now. Father and mother and me, sister and auntie say, all the people like us are we and everyone else is they. And they live over the sea while we live over the way. But would you believe it, they look upon we as only a sort of they. We eat pork and beef with cow-horn-handled knives. They who gobble their rice off a leaf are horrified out of their lives. While they who live up a tree and feast on grubs and clay, isn't it scandalous look upon we as simply a disgusting they? There's more to the poem. There's actually just three more stanzas, but uh, I don't know at what point I pass into intellectual property theft. So I'm going to stop there at those two stanzas for uh, fair use, I hope. Uh, don't at me the estate of Rudyard Kipling, and you can find the rest of it online. I will post that in the show notes. Examples of discriminatory law systems uh, that we would find on the third level of the Pyramid of Hate would include Jim Crow laws from the Reconstruction Era South here in the United States, apartheid laws in South Africa, the Nuremberg Laws in Nazi Germany, and the Statute of Kilkenny in Ireland that forbade marriage between the Irish and English. Anytime you have 
a system of laws that treats two groups as different. Anytime you have different laws that apply to one group versus another, you have discriminatory law practices. By the time societies reach the third level of the pyramid, more and more people will have become aware of the systemic inequalities in their society. What's happening is no longer confined to the hearts, minds, and mouths of the people. The prejudice is now legally enforceable. Prejudice is now government policy. The ADL specifically describes this level as systemic discrimination. More and more in our modern 2020 society, we are coming to accept and recognize the systemic nature of racism and other forms of prejudice. These aren't just ideas that people hold. These are ideas that are entrenched in the institutions and the laws of our society. It's the entire government that is, and the entire society that is working against these particular groups. Institutional racism is a term that was first used by Stokely Carmichael and Charles V. Hamilton in 1967 in the book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. They say that while individual racism is often overt and easily identifiable, institutional racism can be far more subtle. The following quote is from page four of the book. When a black family moves into a home in a white neighborhood and is stoned, burned, or routed out, they are victims of an overt act of individual racism which most people will condemn. But it is institutional racism that keeps black people locked in dilapidated slum tenements, subject to the daily prey of exploitative slumlords, merchants, loan sharks, and discriminatory real estate agents. The society either pretends it does not know of this latter situation or is in fact incapable of doing anything meaningful about it. This discriminatory racism, this institutional racism, has become so entrenched in our societies by the time we start to notice it that it's very difficult to dismantle it, even if we can get people to admit that it's an actual thing. And it's it's still very hard to do even that. There are, I, I couldn't even put a number at it, but there are tons of people who still refuse to admit the institutional nature of prejudice in the United States. They refuse to admit the existence of things like privilege, especially if you are white or male. I myself am white and straight and a man, uh, and I'm, you know, 30, so I'm still relatively young. I have a lot of things in this society working in my favor, and I'll be the first to admit that, but it's not a ubiquitous mindset, which is very unfortunate. Once this legal discrimination, this institutional prejudice has been normalized by people, and we start to come to accept it as just the way things are, we can move on to the fourth level of the pyramid of hate, what the ADL calls bias-motivated violence, and what Alport called physical attack. While previously all levels of the pyramid have either been limited to words or government policy creating systemic injustices, at level four, it's evolved into full-fledged violence. The ADL includes the following on the fourth level of the pyramid. Threats, desecration, vandalism, arson, assault, rape, murder, and terrorism. These actions can be verbal or physical violence, and they can be targeted towards individual people, or at the group at large. In simple terms, this level contains hate crimes. The victims of these assaults, murders, etc. were targeted because of their membership to a particular group. 
this is different than regular murder or assault or what have you because of the intent and motive behind it. We discussed in our previous episode, when going over the definition of genocide, how important intent is in these types of crimes. And that's what makes hate crimes and crimes like genocide so much worse than an ordinary murder, because we're not just, and murder is bad, we can all admit that. Anytime someone's killed by another human being, whether through malice or accident, it's a horrible tragedy. But the intent behind hate crimes makes them significantly more heinous. Someone's not just being murdered because it was a crime of passion or because through whatever accident they got, you know, hit by a car or something, right, because the driver couldn't brake in time. In a hate crime, someone's being targeted because of their membership to a group. And that intent there, that motivation to target someone because of their membership to a group, makes the true target of the crime not the individual that was killed, but the entire group that the individual was a part of. The individual person becomes merely an avatar for the assailant's hate towards their entire group. And that speaks to a motivation to at least somewhat destroy that group, not just that person. Now, the United States passed its first piece of hate crime legislation in 1871 in order to combat the growing number of crimes being committed by the KKK. So it's 2020 now, right? And it was 1871 when that law was passed. So let's do a little bit of math here. 2020 minus 1871 gets us 149 years since the passage of the first piece of recognized hate crime legislation in the United States. And let's just take a look at where we're at now. Yeah, it's, it's not any better. American hate crime laws have done little to combat hate crimes in the United States, and this is largely because of the way those laws are enforced, how police organizations feel about particular racial groups. We're not going to really go into the racism in police organizations, but you should know that it is there. There is a, a very distinct unequal treatment of the races amongst police forces. But another reason that we've been so ineffectual in getting rid of or preventing hate crimes in the United States is because American courts and just the United States government refuses to pass any kind of hate speech law. American courts have repeatedly refused to pass hate speech laws stating that to do so would be in violation of their citizens' right to free speech. Uh, this is completely ridiculous, right? Free speech is an important thing, and when we first passed the First Amendment back when our country was being founded, we established freedom of speech and expression and the press as our chiefest of virtues so that citizens would be able to critique, right, criticize their own government without fear of being put in jail for treason. Its intent was not to allow you to say horrifically racist or sexist things with impunity. It was merely to allow citizens to have a voice against the actions of their government without fearing going to jail or being killed for it. The free speech debate is a big one that's been raging in the United States since day one and that we still haven't found a resolution on. Free speech does not grant you impunity in saying anything that you want. 
it merely says that the government won't pass laws abridging your freedom of speech. It, it does nothing to prevent private organizations or individuals from disliking what you're saying or disallowing you from voicing those opinions on their various privately held platforms. It does nothing to stop private individuals from taking umbrage or offense at what you say. And if your only defense of what you're saying is, oh, well, I have free speech, you might want to reevaluate what you're saying and why you're saying it. Speech that calls for violence against a person or group is considered non-protected speech by U.S. courts, but hate speech doesn't fall under that category. These rulings by U.S. courts fail to take into account the harmful and violent nature of certain types of rhetoric and hate speech. Nazis and white supremacists are allowed to voice their opinions under the law. The KKK and neo-Nazis have even been defended by organizations like the ACLU, uh, stating that they should be allowed to voice their opinions, however abhorrent those are. However, the core of the philosophies of these groups is the creation of a white ethnostate and genocide. Uh, so by failing to address the harmful nature of their language, we're failing to address the root of the issue, which is the normalization of these prejudiced ideas. Hate speech should absolutely be illegal in the United States. Nazi rhetoric and symbology is illegal in Germany because they saw where that led, right? They experienced the Holocaust in a way that no one else really did in Germany. So they, they banned it. They made it illegal to voice those opinions. And we have failed to do so in the United States. We have a resurgence of neo-Nazis in organizations like the alt-right, uh, the Proud Boys. There are other groups whose names I'm blanking on right now, but there are hundreds of recognized hate groups in the United States. I think over a thousand at this point. Check the Southern Poverty Law Center's uh, hate map if you want a more exact number on that. But these groups are allowed to organize and speak and to spread their hateful and harmful ideas, and the courts and the government refuse to do anything about it, and it's, it's abhorrent, it's disgusting. So these are acts of individual or group violence on level four of the pyramid of hate, violence against particular people or particular groups, whether it's against the physical body of those groups or against their institutions, uh, places of worship, etc. so forth, desecration and destruction of tombstones, uh, graffiti on homes or places of religious worship. These are also included on the fourth level of the Pyramid of Hate, so it's not just the attacks on people who are members of those groups. Once everything that's come before this has been normalized, we reach level five of the Pyramid of Hate, what the ADL calls genocide and what Alport just called extermination. This is where everything has been leading, the anti-locution, the acts of bias, the systemic discrimination, the bias-motivated violence, it all leads to genocide. Now, it doesn't always. Some societies can spend years or decades at various levels of the pyramid, all of which can be happening at the same time. Not every piece of hate legislation, uh, discriminatory legislation, not every racist joke will lead to genocide, but everything that comes before the genocide itself on this pyramid serves to normalize the idea that certain groups of people should not be afforded protection under the law. 
that it's okay to relegate them to the outer fringes of society, that they don't deserve protection under the law, and that violence and against them and hate towards them is acceptable. Now that we've covered the pyramid of hate in, I feel, pretty sufficient detail, we're going to move on to Gregory Stanton's Ten Stages of Genocide. Dr. Gregory Stanton is the president and founder of Genocide Watch, an organization that uh, has a number of great resources to teach you about genocide and about genocide prevention. In 1996, Stanton presented a short paper to the U.S. State Department wherein he suggested that genocide developed in eight stages that are predictable but not inexorable. He based his original analysis on the Rwandan genocide that had occurred in 1994. He updated that paper in 2012 to include two more stages. Uh, Stanton's 10 stages of genocide in order are classification, symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, and now, so we've gotten nine stages right there, but Stanton has a tenth stage of genocide, which he calls denial, and indicates that that is still part of the genocide being committed. Stanton makes an excellent point in his updated paper. He says, no model is ever perfect. All are merely ideal, typical representations of reality that are meant to help us think more clearly about social and cultural processes. It's important not to confuse any stage with a status. Each stage is a process. It's like a fluctuating point on a thermometer that rises and falls as the social temperature in a potential area of conflict rises and falls. It's crucial not to confuse this model with a linear one. In all genocides, many stages occur simultaneously. What Stanton's saying is that while there are 10 stages of genocide and that his model is roughly predictive on the path that a society will take, the process isn't linear. It doesn't happen one, then the other, then the other, then the other. We can have multiple or all of the stages happening simultaneously, and any one particular action can be analyzed through several levels of Stanton's 10 stages. While the genocide itself is happening, everything in the previous stages or on the previous levels of the Pyramid of Hate will still be happening. So this is not a linear one-then-the-other process. This is These are just sort of road signs that we can try and recognize before we get to the actual killing. Chell Anderson, the author of the book Perpetrating Genocide, uses a dichotomistic classification of genocides. Hot genocides, which are motivated by hate and the victim's threatening nature, uh, and then low-intensity cold genocides, which are rooted in the victim's supposed inferiority. Either one of those classifications of genocide can be applied to Stanton's Pyramid of Hate. It's just the method that we use to dehumanize these groups. Are they a threat to our very way of life that will destroy us, or are they an inferior group of people that brings nothing of value to society? We spent a lot of time going over the Pyramid of Hate and the Alport scale, and we're not going to really go into too much detail on Gregory Stanton's 10 stages of genocide, because to do so would be to repeat a number of the ideas that we've already gone over. But, you know, you can definitely look up Stanton's 10 stages of genocide on genocidewatch.org. 
there'll be a link to that in the show notes that you can find and click on so that you don't have to hunt it down yourself. And we're going to go into more detail next month on part of Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide. So while the Pyramid of Hate and Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide are useful tools for analyzing events that have already happened, they can also be used as a tool for genocide prevention. While the Pyramid of Hate and Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide are useful tools for analyzing events that have already happened, and they can be used as tools for genocide prevention, they're really just theories. They're our best guess for how these types of things happen and what we can look for to try and prevent them in the future. There's an age-old saying that says those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. But those who do study history are doomed to shout into the void as our opinions and hard work is ignored by the people with the power and authority to actually do something about it. It's difficult to mobilize people against words, against jokes. It's nearly impossible to get them to take the threat that these things pose seriously. And then once the genocide is over, those same people will ask how this could possibly have happened. They'll say that no one could have seen it coming, that this came out of nowhere. They will ignore the fact that historians will have spent years prior pointing out the inherent dangers of discriminatory legislation, of racist language and hate speech of various kind. They will ignore all of that, everything that we tried to tell them beforehand, and then when it's over, they'll make pretend that no one could have possibly seen it coming. And they'll do this as a way of trying to mollify people. It's not that we saw what was happening and didn't do anything about it. It's not that we willfully ignored all of these signs and did nothing to prevent the mass slaughter of millions of people. No one could have possibly seen this coming. It's ridiculous and disappointing, and it's been happening since the beginning of human history. So while we can make ourselves informed about tools like the Allport Scale, the Pyramid of Hate, and the Ten Stages of Genocide, organizations like the United Nations are still horrifically slowed by the weight of their bureaucracy and the shield of state sovereignty. Making genocide prevention, while it is the ultimate goal of the UNCPPCG, the Convention for the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide, it's a pipe dream. The UN and the US and the various quote-unquote superpowers of the world will continue to be ineffectual about preventing genocide and they will continue to fall very short of the mark and then make it seem like they did the best they could, but it's just too difficult to actually do anything about it. This continues a thread that I'm sure will pop up in many episodes in the future of me being consistently disappointed in the UN's lack of political will. We're actually going to probably talk about that in the next two episodes. Next week, we're going to be discussing the 10th stage of genocide denial in more detail. If you like what you heard here, follow us on social media at Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash genastorypod, or you can send an email to genastorypod at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments or topics that you'd like to hear about. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so that other people can find us. 
We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, really anywhere that you can think of, we're there. If uh, you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, please send a message through some way on Facebook or through email and let me know, and I will do my best to make sure that we are on there for the future. Um, thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the app Hatchful and my amazing wife, uh, MJ Bradley, for designing and then editing our logo. Until next time, I'm John, and this has been Genistory. We agreed to do this. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 